The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing and the week ahead in stocks. It is an utterly miserable day on Wall Street. The selling continues, and the S&P 500 has entered correction territory, joining the NASDAQ with a loss of 10% or more. Small cap stocks are already in a bear market, down about 20%. What is ailing investors, and where do we go from here? For that, I'm going to turn to today's guests, Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Ben Inker, Co-Head of Asset Allocation at GMO. So welcome, Ben and Ben. I apologize in advance because this could be a very confusing call. I'm going to try to keep the two Bens apart. <laughs> no problem. Happy to be here. Excellent. So, so Ben Inker, I'm going to start with you. Your colleague, Jeremy Grantham, had a very public prediction recently. He's warned that a super bubble is bursting in stocks, in real estate, in many other assets, and he thinks U.S. stocks will fall 45%. Of course, he's been super bearish for a long time, and he's been wrong before, as we know. But I'm wondering whether your views are aligned with Jeremy's at this point, and if not, what do you see? Well, I, I'm certainly in, in strong agreement with him that the U.S. Uh, stock market is is substantially overvalued. Uh, it's the least attractive major market uh, in the world, at least with with regard to equities, uh, and it could stand to fall a, a good deal from here, despite the fact that it's down 10 from its highs. Um, you know, the, I, I suppose the only nuance I'd add to Jeremy's point, Jeremy is looking at the market and saying, hey, its valuations are basically double those of historic averages. Um, and that's why he thinks it needs to fall by approximately 50%. Um, he also says the housing market is overvalued, but also crucially, he's saying he thinks the bond market is overvalued. And there is where I think there is some nuance. If he's right, if bond yields are going to have to go back up towards historic norms, let's say the 10-year bond starts with a four instead of a one, uh, I think we are going to have to see this very big downward repricing of assets. Um, if it's possible for today's bond rates to be sustained, then I think there's a little bit more nuance. Um, stocks are really expensive relative to history. They're much less expensive relative to the obvious alternative of owning cash and bonds. And every investor at all times has to be fully invested in something. In a oh. world where bonds and cash offer very little, I think equities could get away with higher valuations um, than a world where bonds offer a decent return again. I think the, the key risk there uh, really comes down to inflation forcing the hand of the Fed, of the Federal Reserve. 
Um, and I think there's there's quite a good chance that Jeremy is right on this. If he's not, it's probably because somehow inflation why manages to get under control without uh, substantial tightening by the Federal Reserve. That's a lot to think about and not a lot of pleasant stuff to think about. <laughs> so Ben Levison, you had some interesting thoughts when we were talking this morning about what's actually spooking investors, in addition to everything that Ben Inker just discussed, I'd like to hear more of those thoughts, and I'm sure our listeners would too. Can you fill us in a little bit, please? Yeah, and I should start off by saying these aren't my thoughts. These came from me reading a Jeffrey's note this morning. Um, but I think it really plays into what's happening with this market. Um, you know, at first it was all just tech that was falling. Um, and you could actually find some safety in other parts of the market. Now it just seems like everything is getting hit hard. And one of the things that uh, this note had pointed out was that um, the the yield curve, um, at first it was the, um, the, the the short end to two year that was rising. And that was what was hitting the speculative tech. And they'd been getting hit for a while. And that was fine because most of those stocks were small enough and you could watch them fall and giggle because, you know what, I never got into that speculative bubble stuff. Um, but you could hold on to everything else. But the other parts of the curve are now are now signaling worries about economic growth. And so if you have economic growth worries showing up in the bond curve, now all of a sudden you can't own the stuff that uh, it does well if the economy is growing fast um, because the economy might not be growing fast um, and there, there really is no place to hide. Um, and, you know, when we're watching these numbers right now. Um, we have a fourth quarter GDP is coming out. I think it's supposed to be um, up in the high uh, five uh, percentages, five uh, percent range, like 5.9 or so. Um, but the Atlanta Fed GDP now is saying that that could disappoint and come in around 5.1 percent. And the GDP now is a pretty decent indicator. Um, and we're also starting to see worries about the first quarter of this year in growth, uh, a lot of that because of Omicron, uh, but maybe other things as well. And I think uh, that's what has morphed uh, what was maybe just a, a normal correction. And I know we're still just in correction territory, but in that was led by tech stocks into something that feels a little bit larger now. But 5% GDP growth is nothing to sneeze at when you consider we were barely making 2% before the pandemic. No, that's absolutely right. But remember, everything goes off of expectations. Um, and so if the economy isn't as strong as it was hoped to be this uh, this past quarter, the one that ended uh, at the end of 2021, and is now um, feeling headwinds from Omicron and other things, and first quarter is going to disappoint, that is a lot of disappointment. All right. So we're going to get a Fed meeting this week before we get to the end of first quarter, obviously. And few people expect the Fed to lift rates before March, but they will have some comments on Wednesday. Ben Inker, what do you think the Fed will tell us Wednesday? Uh, <clears throat> I don't think they're going to tell us any surprises. Uh, one of the lessons the Fed has learned is um, if they want the market to be well behaved, they need to uh, they need to really telegraph what they're going to say. So they are almost certainly going to be saying the the March meeting is uh, likely to be when they start increasing rates. They will be talking about uh, their reduction of kind of quantitative easing. Um, I wouldn't expect 
anything surprising. I certainly don't expect them to be particularly reacting to what's going on in the market uh, because what's going on in the market hasn't really affected financial plumbing or you know what's going on with credit or anything that should cause the Federal Reserve to be really worried about the impact the financial economy might have on the real economy. At what point does the wealth effect diminish, however, if stocks keep selling off? Well, you know, the reality is the wealth effect from stocks hasn't been particularly impressive in a long time. Uh, and this maybe isn't such a surprise. After all, the stock market is generally owned by rich people um, and rich people have a pretty low marginal propensity to spend. Uh, so what we've seen over the past decade or so is that there has been very little wealth effect uh, from stocks. Now, admittedly, the last decade has largely been about stocks going up instead of stocks going down. Um, uh, the only time stocks went down very significantly was obviously early 2020. And man, whatever was going on with spending probably had very little to do with the stock market move itself. Um, but I don't think there is much wealth effect uh, with regard to stocks. Interesting. So how do you think an investor should be positioned now for coming rate hikes, continued inflation, a possible deceleration of economic growth that Ben just spoke about? I'll turn that over to Ben Inker as well. What do you think? Well, you know, what we have tried to do is look for those places where you seem to be getting paid for taking risk. Uh, obviously, one thing about the world today is if you're not prepared to take risk, you're not going to get paid anything, right? Cash yields next to nothing, bonds yield next to cash. Um, <clears throat> the question is, where are you getting paid for taking risk in, say, stocks? Uh, we think that that is generally much more true outside of the U.S. than in the U.S. The U.S. has absolutely destroyed the rest of the world in terms of stock market returns over the last decade. Uh, and the rest of the world is an awful lot cheaper. Uh, we also think other parts of the world are probably more resilient against inflation than the U.S. is. That's true in Europe and Japan, frankly, because the inflation they're seeing is significantly less extreme. In fact, in Japan, they're not actually seeing any inflation at all. We'd also say the emerging markets are probably not a bad place to be sitting if inflation is going to be a global problem because they are the one place that remembers inflation. Um, and so if you told a Brazilian, hey, inflation might be a thing, they'd say, well, that is my entire life. <laughs> right. um, uh, whereas it's really in, in the developed world where we have forgotten about the problem of inflation and controlling inflation. Uh, so we like emerging markets. Uh, we like non-US equity markets. Um, our biggest risk position um, is actually not a long equity position, but a long value stock, short growth stocks, um, uh, long short trade. Um, and the reason why we have liked that is, again, because growth stocks have absolutely destroyed value stocks over the past going on 15 years. And value stocks have been trading at some of the cheapest relative values they ever have. Um, so we like that trade. Uh, and again, one nice thing about that is 
Um, it doesn't actually care much about what's going on with inflation. If anything, value stocks have a decent claim uh, to do better in the event of inflation. People have been been projecting the return of value for a long time. Hasn't quite happened yet, but perhaps this will be the moment. Yeah, you know, it's it is one of those <laughs> one of those times where uh, even if you don't know the timing, um, you can look at what has gone on with the pricing and say, well, man, sooner or later, uh, these value stocks really do deserve to outperform. Um, I think it is a quite a good chance that as history looks back, uh, kind of the point where the value rally began is going to have been uh, the fall of 2020. Um, uh, and obviously value has had a very nice start to the year this year. Um, uh, but they're still ungodly cheap relative to the growth stocks. And, and we think they've got a good ways to go. Sounds good. So I want to move on to this week's corporate earnings as we do on our Monday calls. And I want to remind listeners as we do that we're going to take questions at the end of the call. So please type in your questions. We'll set aside some time for them. Last week, bad news from companies like Peloton and Netflix really tanked the market along with every other concern we've been discussing. This week, we're going to hear from some very big companies, including Microsoft, Apple, and Tesla. Ben Levison will take us through some of the week's reports. But first, I have a question for Ben Inker. What do you think is the overall outlook for first quarter earnings? What do you expect? Um, you know, as Ben Levison was saying earlier, um, it's all a game of what happens relative to expectations. Uh, in absolute terms, uh, earnings should be very good in the fourth quarter of, uh, of 2001. Economic growth was almost certainly very good. Um, it, it, you know, trade was good. The buying of, of goods <laughs> was, was very good. So I, I think in kind of relative to history, the earnings numbers are going to have been very good. Whether they're good relative to expectations is a lot harder to know. Um, and I haven't honestly the faintest idea. That's an honest answer and we appreciate those. So with that, Ben Levison, give us your overview for first quarter earnings and then let's dive into Microsoft. Sure, I know, I think uh, Ben Inker kind of nailed it because um, you know, I, I would look at these declines right now and say, wow, you know, if, if we get the kind of beats that we normally would get from uh, these companies, you know, a lot of these stocks are on sale. Um, you know, they've, they've gotten just uh, destroyed heading into their earnings releases. Um, but there's so much going on around both um, what the valuation should be if the Fed is is raising rates, um, but also questions about the uh, the, the strength of earnings going forward. And I think that's partially what spooked the market so much about Netflix. Um, you have a company who, you know, the fourth quarter numbers were fine, um, but then they came out with a subscriber edition uh, forecast that was uh, bad enough that it, um, it really made you question how much it was going to, to be able to grow going forward. And um, I think everyone's going to be looking at uh, the numbers that come out um, 
from companies uh, this quarter to, to really see, you know, are they going to be able to grow in this kind of environment? We also saw from the banks, costs are rising, costs from hiring people are going up. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of uh, probably cost pressures showing up as well that could hit margins. And so there's just a lot of things going on that's going to make this earnings season, I think, a lot more difficult than uh, the ones that we've seen in the last uh, few quarters. Just what we need, a difficult earnings season. So let's start in with this week's earnings. Why don't you begin with Microsoft? Tell us what's ahead. Well, I think Microsoft is a is a good example of, of what we're dealing with here. So the stock, uh, this was as of Friday's close, was down 12% uh, percent from its uh, this year. Um, it's expected to report earnings of uh, $2.32. That would be up from, from $2.03. So some nice earnings growth, sales of uh, over $50 billion. Um, and, you know, everyone is going to look at this number and, um, you know, and the question will be, is it good enough? The, the worry has to be that, um, uh, so everyone expects that part of what's built into the tech sector in particular is that um, the pandemic has uh, increased this need to shift into the cloud and there, there should be this continued growth in, in cloud spending. Um, but if Microsoft doesn't show that, that could be a real problem, not just for Microsoft itself, but for um, the other cloud stocks out there, the software stocks, they're supposed to see all this money from tech spending. So I think Microsoft, as much as the earnings themselves, it's going to be what they say about the spending um, going forward into these very important areas, especially when it comes to uh, the kind of capital spending on tech that uh, investors are inspecting. So we'll expecting. be listening for that. What about Apple? What should we be listening for when Apple reports on Thursday? Um, for them, it's, you know, they... Uh, don't like to give quarterly guidance, um, as uh, Eric Savitz noted. Um, th there's no excitement around their numbers. Um, you know, you, you listen to the analysts that are talking about modest upside to current estimates and things like that. Um, and, and so I, I do think people want to see, you know, is the business holding up uh, in China? Are they growing their their, their iPhones? Um, and, and then do they offer any any um, outlook for going ahead, enough details to make you feel comfortable that the company can grow. Because um, it's, uh, you know, it's also down, but it's not down as much. It's down 8.5% this year uh, through Friday's close. It's supposed to have $1.88. That'd be up from $1.68. So nice numbers. But I think that they need to be a little bit better than that. And the details of these numbers have to show that people still want to be buying phones, still want these products. Um, otherwise, again, there could be problems. All right, we're going to hear from a batch of industrial companies as well, and that could give us a read on the economy. So 3M is up, General Electric. Tell us what's ahead for those. Well, 3M is an interesting one. Um, JP Morgan is actually pretty bullish on the stock. Um, they said that, you know, the company's been working on things like uh, cutting their costs, um, restructuring to make sure that uh, they can save money and that they're actually saving the money. Um, and they think this could be a much more profitable company this quarter than it has been. Um, and that means that it uh, could beat the street, which only expects growth to be up 6%. That would be, um, I think, $2.02 is expected um, from them. Sales are supposed to come in at about $8.6 billion. Um, so they're, um, I think industrials generally, though, are benefiting from their, their ability to pass through some of the rising prices uh, that we're seeing in commodities and things like that. Um, and that's particularly a good example. I'm going to skip on to one that you didn't mention yet, Lauren, but I think okay. that's one in, Cat, in Caterpillar where um, there's starting to be some optimism that not only are 
company is going to need to replace the current machines. But if commodity prices stay strong, um, then they're going to need to buy new machines. Um, and Caterpillar is going to be able to, you know, the customers are going to be making more money off of what they sell. And they're not going to bulk so much at spending more money. So Caterpillar will have an easier time pushing through the costs. And so Melius Research was actually very optimistic about Caterpillar um, and thinking that the street is uh, underestimating their earnings by quite a bit. Um, GE is going to be an interesting one, not for the earnings per se, because that's one that uh, it's a company that's going to split up. It's been through this uh, massive transportation already. I think this is the first quarter where GE is not going to have to report GE Capital. GE Capital doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and so it's supposed to have uh, earnings of 82 cents. That'd be up from, I think, eight cents a year ago. Um, and But the so far, it hasn't been the signs haven't been great because um, the other companies that kind of do the same things have reported and they've either been kind of not very good or kind of mixed. And so it'll be interesting to see how the actual numbers are, but also how investors respond to any new information they get from Larry Culp, uh, the CEO there, about the breakup of the company and how that's going to go out, go forward. I thought David Giroux of Tiro Price made a pretty convincing case for GE and last week's roundtable issue in Barron's. It's an interesting stock to watch. Yeah, I agree. And uh, um, Al Root also had an interview with Larry Culp from this weekend where Larry Culp argued fairly vigorously that the stock is not dead money. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. (laughs) What do you expect him to stay? Yeah, true, true. (laughs) Okay. So I want to move on quickly to oil. We're going to hear from Chevron this week and a few other energy companies between the energy transition and geopolitical tensions in Russia and now in the Middle East. There's a lot to focus on in the energy market. Ben Inker, I'm wondering what your take is on all of this geopolitical tension and its impact on investor psychology in the market. Yeah. You know, what we see historically is that the vast majority of geopolitical events do not leave a lasting mark on uh, the financial markets. If you get something that rises to the level of, you know, say a world war, of course, it will have a lasting effect. Um, But the vast majority of the rest... uh, come and go, they will have a short-term impact, um, but most of them don't have that much long-term impact, Uh, particularly when it comes to kind of the the general functioning of of the global economy. Um, So I would tend to not spend that much of my time worrying about Russia versus the Ukraine. Uh, as a long-term investor, I think as a trader, of course you need to. Um, you know, obviously, if you own Russian or Ukrainian assets, uh, this is a, a a very kind of potentially impactful thing. Um, and if you but, live in either place, you certainly want to worry. Well, sure, but you're not worrying about your portfolio. No, not uh, at that you, You're worrying about uh, more important things. Right. So... One more question I wanted to ask you before we move on to some listener questions. 
the institutional investment world has rushed into private equity in the past two years and other similar sorts of alternative assets. As we sometimes say, it's a crowded trade. And I know that you are no fan of this move. We talked about it last week. Why do you think it will end in tears? Well, I, I think a lot of people tend to misunderstand where the returns come from in private equity. Uh, a lot of people, and this includes sophisticated institutions, say, oh, we want to invest in private equity because we're long-term investors and we can take advantage of the illiquidity premium. The illiquidity premium is this idea that because investors don't like to hold assets that they can't sell when they want to, those kinds of assets should have a higher should have a higher return. Um, and that's true in some cases. Uh, it's not true for private equity. And the reason why it's not true for private equity is because in general, private equity gets its assets from the public equity markets. It buys companies. It says, ooh, company X is undervalued. Let's go buy it. Um, <clears throat> restructure it while it's private and then uh, list it on the public market again. But both the entry point and the exit point are the public markets. So there's no way there could be a illiquidity premium associated with that investment. Now, the manager may do a good job of managing the company. They may do a good job of finding an undervalued company or selling it at a good time. All of that is about market inefficiency and extraordinary managers. Uh, and I think the biggest problem with private equity is you are always paying as if the manager involved is extraordinary. Uh, and a lot of them aren't. Um, so you're paying high prices uh, in, in terms of what you're going to pay the what you're going to pay the manager. In general, the return you're going to get is a levered version of the stock market. Um, and as we That's are seeing really now, stock markets don't yeah. only go up. <laughs> a levered version of the stock market on the way down sounds like a big problem. It is, actually. I mean, one thing I will say about the, the levered version of the stock market you get with private equity is there is a big advantage to owning, let's say, the S&P and borrowing against that or buying the S&P on leverage, which is you've got to mark that thing to market and you will get a margin call. Uh, the good news about the kind of debt private equity managers go get is there is no margin call associated with market volatility. There is at the end of the day kind of a market a margin equivalent if the fundamentals of the company wind up deteriorating. Um, but if you were going to own the market in a levered fashion, I warmly recommend figuring out a way to do it without margin calls and private equity does do that. All right. That's it's an interesting point. We hadn't really talked much about private equity in recent calls. I'm glad we did. I have one more question for you, Ben Inker, and then we'll go to some listener questions. Uh, we mentioned cash. Is now a good time to hide in cash or uh, do you still prefer the value stocks, international stocks? Et yeah, I mean, to me, this is the big difference between the world today and the world of 2000, which was the last time we had a massive kind of overvaluation in the U.S. stock market. In 2000, you know, the cash yielded over six. The tips yielded over 4% real. If you were nervous, if you said, gee, I don't like where valuations are, you could stick your money in cash or something else very safe and get a very nice real return. Uh, today, obviously, cash yields nothing. Uh, 
the only circumstance in which owning something that gives you nothing feels like a good idea is when everything else falls. Now, today, everything else is falling. Um, but you really got to know something about timing to be excited about owning cash here. Whereas you didn't um, back in 2000, or to some degree, back even in 2008, where cash yields were at least a few percent. Uh, so I think, you know, the market could really uh, go down a bunch here. Um, if it does, you will be very happy you stuck money in cash. We haven't put much of our uh, portfolios into cash. Um, but on the other hand, we don't have that much of it, which is directly exposed to the stock market. We have a lot of it in liquid alternative strategies, which are much less directional than the stock market. And we're happy owning those. Um, but it's a little bit more of a crapshoot uh, if you were to be holding cash today. Okay, thank you for that. A um, little bit ominous as well. So you mentioned 2000. We have questions from Bob and Allie, and they both want to know, do the markets look like 2000 to you? Well, the, <clears throat> the thing that looks very similar uh, is the extraordinary premium uh, that the market has accorded to kind of secular growth stocks. Uh, you know, the number of stocks that we're trading at above 10 times revenues, uh, you, you know, is usually a pretty small number. It got to be a big number in 2000. And the only time it ever got to be a big number uh, again um, was over the last couple of years. Uh, and that gap between value and growth is really big. Uh, and the valuations look pretty similar. The context is a little bit different, and it's different in two ways. One was in 2000, you could be forgiven for saying that the economy was actually pretty wonderful. Uh, we had just had a five-year period where economic growth was the best we had seen since probably the 1960s. Uh, productivity growth was running close to 3% a year. Um, and it really did feel like uh, a, a pretty extraordinary time. Uh, today, it's we don't see anything like that kind of productivity growth. The economic growth is not going to be anywhere near as good. Um, the valuations are high, and a lot of the expectations are similarly high, which is kind of even more of a head-scratcher. Um, uh, I can sort of understand why analysts had such high long-term growth forecasts in 2000. I don't understand it from here. Uh, and I think it's one of the great weaknesses of, of today's markets that uh, the expectations people have are just unrealistic. Um, uh, and that means when those companies wind up inevitably disappointing, uh, they got a long way to fall. Well, the fall has started, as we've noted. So Arnold has a question for you. He wants to know regarding the long, the long, excuse me, the long value and short growth trade. Do you have a specific ETF that you would recommend for investors? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. Uh, the when we were putting together the strategy we're running for our clients, 
we specifically chose not to try to look like any of the ETFs. The ETFs tend to look like you know the the broad indices. And one of the things about the uh, the stock market style indices is they have huge weightings in the fangs. So you have a huge weighting in Apple, you have a huge weighting in Microsoft and Google and Amazon. And those to us don't look like the most extremely overvalued companies. They don't look cheap, um, but they're not stupid. Uh, and we wanted to be focusing on shorting the stupid. Um, now, if you think about kind of ETFs, any active ETF the manager is certainly not going to be seeking out the stupid, um, you know, you know, Kathy Wood and, and Ark may be in secular growth, but Lord knows she is not in companies she believes are stupid expensive. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know exactly where you'd go to find the stupid ETF, um, but we have tried to find uh, kind of a collection of companies that are massively overvalued. Um, and the other thing that, that makes this tricky about trying to do it with ETFs is we've also tried to control the risk between the long side and the short side. One big difference between value stocks and growth stocks is growth stocks have a ton of information technology companies and value stocks have a ton of financials. Um, I think financials are cheaper than IT today, uh, but I don't think I wanna have a 25 point bet on that. Um, so unfortunately, I don't know of a good ETF way of, of going about the kind of trade we have. The other thing I would say about the way we're doing it is it's also global. So it's not just in the U.S. We're doing wow. this uh, all around the world. Um, and there's un I, I wish there was an easy way to do it. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't know of it. I should ask Ben Levison, do you have any thoughts about this? Um, I was listening too closely um, <laughs> <laughs> about the shorting. Um, about, right, long value, short growth and the best ways to do it. No, I mean, I, I think that uh, I think uh, Ben and Kurt's points are, are quite good that, um, you know, you do have things like, um, you know, the, 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 the ones I look to for uh, how value and growth are doing are the pure value and pure growth ETFs. Um, and um, but which I, I think would do some of that. But this is also getting into an area where I think it's, um, you know, it's starting to get complicated. Um, and I don't even know what the uh, the borrowing rates would be to short uh, some of these ETFs. I have to imagine that you're uh, paying through the nose to do it. Um, but uh, I, I can't swear that that's true. Um, but like the ones I look at for these kind of things are like uh, the Invesco S&P 500 pure growth ETF, which is RPG, the value version is RPV, because um, they do just go, you know, it's pure growth, pure value, gets rid of all the in-between stuff. Um, but I would say use those more to see how those trades are going, not necessarily to try to put on a pair trade. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good place to start, at least. You know, Ben Inker, you mentioned that you have been investing, your firm has been investing in liquid alternatives. And Judith asks, I think very fairly, what are liquid alternatives? Can you give an example? Sure. Um, so there's strategies like, uh, let's say, um, merger arbitrage, where you are not just 
long a group of stocks, you're saying, hey, I think, I don't know, the AMD Xilinx merger is going to go through. Let me put on a long short trade uh, where if that happens, I will make money. Uh, and what we like about strategies like that is you're still taking risk. Um, you're still doing something you deserve to get paid for in the long run. But the risk is pretty different than the risk in the stock market. So, you know, the AMD Xilinx merger might not go through. It's dependent upon uh, whether the Chinese regulator uh, approves it. And that's a risk. Um, that risk probably has very little to do with what's going on with inflation and frankly, very little to do with what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine. Um, so we like being able to find places where we're taking different kinds of risks. Um, and merger arbitrage or uh, a, a variety of different sort of relative value uh, trades allow us to do that without having so much exposure uh, to the stock market. Uh, but, it, but unfortunately, those are trickier things to run. Right. Best done by a professional in many ways. So I want to ask you, I want to pose a question from Adnan. We haven't talked about this at all. He wants to know what is Ben Inker's view on China? Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, what, what is my view on China? Um, there are cheaper places in the emerging markets to be investing in than China. Um, uh, China is obviously has some very specific risks associated with it. Um, and that makes some people say, Ooh, I don't want to touch it because there's this risk of the government doing something I don't like. Uh, to my mind, that's not such a problem, uh, in the sense that that is broadly true across everything in the emerging markets. And the nice thing about investing in emerging markets is those risks are not necessarily correlated market to market. The risk of the Chinese government doing something you don't like is very different or, or unlikely to be that correlated with the risk of the Brazilian government doing something you don't like or the Turkish government doing something that you don't like. So as I see it, uh, Chinese stocks are risky. They are riskier than stocks in developed markets because of uh, it, it is it is a market where you can trust less in kind of the basic property right that people generally take for granted in the developed world. Um, but the stocks are generally cheaper than they are in the developed world. Um, and we think they make sense to have in your portfolio. I wouldn't want to have a huge piece of my portfolio in China, uh, but a few percent of my overall portfolio in China, I think makes sense today. Uh, I'm not pounding the table on it again, because despite the fact that it underperformed last year, it did spectacularly well on a relative basis uh, in 2020. Um, and there's cheaper places in emerging, uh, but it's definitely a place where both the market is pretty inefficient there's uh, some lovely stock selection opportunities in general in that market. Um, and you're getting paid for taking a risk. That's true, most definitely. So I want to close just asking you to comment. I'm going to give you 30 seconds because we're hitting our deadline here. 
but we have a question from Terry who wants to know what's the outlook for the next 18, 24 months? Can you sum it up quickly? What do you see? Uh, I, I think the key issue over the next 18 to 24 months is what happens with inflation. Uh, and I wish I could tell you, here's what's going to happen with inflation, and therefore, here's what's going to happen to the markets. I don't know. Uh, inflation is running hot. It is not transitory. Um, oh, no. But it is possible that we will be able to get it under control without the Federal Reserve having to do something really aggressive. In that world, maybe things are okay. I still wouldn't really own U.S. stocks. I'd own non-U.S. Uh, stocks because they're so much cheaper. Uh, in a world where inflation proves stubbornly present, uh, man, that's going to be tough for almost all assets. Um, and that, that's a world where it's going to be hard to make money. All right, we're going to leave it there today. I want to thank you, Ben Inker, and thank you, Ben Levison. This has really been a great call and, and certainly addressing what's going on in the market today. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. On tomorrow's Barron's Live, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with longtime tech fund manager and finance professor, Paul Meeks, on what is next for tech. Certainly a question on everyone's minds. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.